0: with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P.com/conspiracy. new season out on spotify soon i'll buy you a diamond ring my friend if it makes you feel all right diamonds are a girl's best friend up above the world so high like a diamond in the sky
1: shine bright like a diamond
0: a diamond is forever
1: i like that one a diamond is forever
0: Hmm, but are diamonds really forever Are they truly so rare and valuable that a diamond engagement ring should cost, on average, $6,000? And so rare that colored diamonds should be sold for more per carat than any other gemstone?
1: Some would believe so. Some, however, do not.
0: Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories
1: behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. And if you enjoy the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps us. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Today, we're investigating the De Beers Diamond Cartel. In the late 19th century, Diamond mine owners across the globe came together under the name of the De Beers Consolidated Mines, reaching a 90% monopoly on the market over the course of the next 100 years.
0: Now, De Beers controls less than 30% of diamond production, but the damage has been done. Amongst the general population in Western societies, diamonds are still considered emblematic of engagements, luxury, and exclusivity, but to some, The high cost of diamonds are not in fact due to their rarity, but rather brilliant marketing and supply monopoly tactics. According to conspiracy theorists, we've all been scammed.
1: But let's address the facts before we theorize. Today we're looking at the official history of diamonds and how they've been considered one of the world's most valuable gemstones.
0: We begin with the intense pressure and unbearable heat forming deep within the earth, with carbon deep within places still unknown to mankind. Just when the carbon cannot withstand any more of the pressure and heat, boom. It ejects itself
1: upward in a violent manner, arriving near the surface of the earth. The surface gives it a chance to cool, to form. Each carbon atom forms a strong bond with four other atoms. It hardens to an incredibly hard to break gemstone soon something will discover what lies beneath the surface it could be a man in search of a better life or nature weathering away at the surface maybe it could be a combination of the two
0: once excavated from the dirt the material is cut and polished and oh how it shines it's a diamond a beautiful diamond a beloved shiny gemstone and scientifically pure carbon in its hardest form
1: In the simplest terms that's a diamond. But the diamond's place in history and culture is a bit more complicated. The time is 800 BC. Floating along the rivers of Godavari and Krishna we find ourselves in India, what is considered the first reported location of diamond mining. Alternatively, many accounts claim that the existence of diamonds could date back as early as 4th century BC. Either way, it always points to India. Diamonds
0: had many uses in ancient India, ranging from gifts for religious ceremonies to tools for carving and engraving. Its versatility, combined with the shimmering aesthetic of the gemstone, made diamonds a very valuable resource in India. Due to its appeal, diamonds were transported to and from India through the trading routes of the Silk Road.
1: While the knowledge of diamonds was reportedly limited to India, Roman scholar Pliny the Elder ended up refuting that fact in 77 AD. In his writings, he confirmed the existence of diamonds.
0: He was quoted to have said, "...diamond is the most valuable, not only of precious stones, but of all things in this world." Quote. Even early on, the gem was associated with high value and prestige.
1: That association remains as we fast forward to 1215 AD, a year before the death of Pope Innocent III. Before his passing, he decided that there should be a waiting period between a betrothal and the actual wedding, a period called an engagement. While this information may seem insignificant now, the creation of the engagement period will eventually depend on diamonds in modern day society and vice versa. Interesting but we're not there just yet. The whispers of diamonds began to spread throughout the globe. India was no longer the only country aware of such a treasure. Everyone wanted in on the treat. This was especially the case in Europe.
0: Trading routes expanded towards Europe, and soon enough, the first diamond-cutting industry began in Venice, Italy in 1330. As stated before, diamonds have to be cut and polished before finding a home on someone's finger or in a jewelry box. The polishing business was a lucrative one, but it wasn't an easy business. Diamond cutting involved being incredibly delicate and investing in top-notch technology to make for the perfect cut. Incredible pressure had to be put on each diamond, and while some diamonds were cut with special knives, it was discovered in the 1400s that the best way to cut a diamond was by using another diamond, making the process even more expensive.
1: Diamonds were essentially reserved for royalty. In fact, the first recorded diamond engagement ring was given in 1477 when Archduke Maximilian of Austria gave a diamond ring to his bride-to-be, Mary of Burgundy. Mining and cutting diamonds was a very serious task, a task that would only grow more serious and important because while India had reigned supreme over the resource, over time the supply was being depleted the budding diamond industry needed to secure a supply of quality diamonds to maintain the prestige they had been building. For a time, diamonds became more rare and more treasured. People desperately began to search for alternative sources in other lands. And by 1729, diamonds were being discovered all over the world. Large-scale diamond mining began in 1870 in the Northern Cape of South Africa. The site was a big, big gaping hole, filled with an indescribable amount of water. At the bottom of the hole, and buried below it, there were shimmering glints amongst the dirt and rock.
0: This hole became the Kimberley Mine, and there, diamonds were plentiful.
1: However, while it was exciting at first, this quickly became a cause of concern for the current diamond producers. If diamonds were in abundance, they could no longer be sold for high prices as rare. It's basic supply and demand. But for the common person, pursuing diamonds
0: was living out a dream. They didn't care for the business side of things. They knew that diamonds were precious, and a large diamond could fetch a fortune. So many men set out with pickaxes and pans alike in search of newfound riches and in hopes of making a name for themselves. It was just like the gold rushes that would come over the next hundred years with thousands of men migrating to one place in hopes of getting rich quick. Among these starry-eyed men was none other than Cecil Rhodes.
1: Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message.
0: And now, back to Conspiracy Theories.
1: For his entire childhood and adolescent life, Cecil Rhodes had been known for one thing, his illness. A victim to a weak heart and lungs, Cecil struggled to be anything but average. Born in 1853, he grew up in a smaller English city called Bishop Stortford, Hertfordshire, as one of twelve children.
0: Sounds like a large family, but this was a common number at the time. Still, Cecil grew up overlooked. With all his brothers and sisters, his parents' attention was always pulled in different directions. The only thing that seemed to keep Cecil going was dreaming of better things in life, such as attending Oxford University like his peers.
1: However, his family's poverty and his illness meant that things such as university at Oxford were not in the cards for him. Cecil would not only be a sickly man, but he would be an uneducated one as well his entire being burned with embarrassment at the thought. So when he received a letter from his older brother, Herbert, who wanted Cecil to join him in the diamond rush, this felt like a saving grace. Without a moment of hesitation, he quickly accepted the offer, packed up and set off to South Africa in 1870.
0: Who could blame him? I would have accepted too. That all sounds depressing.
1: This is a happy story, actually. Agreeing to go to South Africa was perhaps the best decision of his life. For once, Cecil Rhodes had the chance to forge his own legacy.
0: The Rhodes Brothers reunion was actually quite brief. Instead of getting involved with the diamond rush, Herbert actually wanted Cecil to stay behind and watch his cotton farm while he was away. It was a reasonable solution due to the young man's sick nature, Cecil reluctantly agreed, but those feelings of inadequacy only began to grow. If his own brother didn't believe in him, how would anyone else? Herbert embarked on the trek with countless others in hopes of discovering diamonds through the Cape towards Orange River and Hopetown. The conditions were hot and brutal, but many thought it would be worth it because of the potential of discovering diamonds.
1: For the people of the time, diamonds were less something physical and far more of a concept. Very few people had actually seen one in real life. Because of this, there were a lot of misconceptions about diamonds. People confused diamonds with quartz.
0: And people thought diamonds were indestructible and smashed real diamonds with hammers to prove their
1: validity. Ugh, that hurts to hear. However, it was possible to distinguish the difference between diamond and quartz. Diamonds may not be indestructible, but they are much harder than any other gemstone. They're actually four times harder than the next hardest gemstone, corundum. Plus, the crystal form of quartz has six sides compared to a diamond's four sides.
0: Despite the lack of knowledge, I think it's admirable that the trekkers took a leap of faith and arrived at the diamond fields, hoping for discovery.
1: Meanwhile, back at the farm, Cecil Rhodes actually thrived under the South African conditions. Keeping an eye out for his brother's farm in Natal meant that he had to endure physical labor and handle trades. This not only sharpened his mind, but made him stronger than he'd ever been in his life. And with that, his confidence grew, and he was the happiest he'd ever been. Things that were not once possible now were.
0: Such as attending Oxford University. Cecil still hadn't lost sight of that goal. He began to save parts of his wages for a future of his own. But while he bided his time, Cecil refused to sit out on all the action. His confidence called for a stronger ambition. In 1871, he joined up with Herbert on the new rush, a few months after Herbert bought claims on the De Beers mine.
1: While on the mine, Cecil rented out water pumps to diamond miners and fellow claimholders of the land, whose efforts had been stopped by bad weather. The water pumps helped to drain the mines. He made enormous profits and invested some of those earnings into the De Beers mine claims that Herbert bought, hoping they would strike diamonds.
0: Cecil had always been a clever man. He was unapologetically strategic and had a good head for business, but he had lingering attachments to his past. He still had a desire to study in London and live out his lifelong dream of studying at Oxford. Therefore, he decided to focus on both avenues, diamonds and education, splitting his time between South Africa and London. He studied philosophy.
1: Philosophy. How fitting, since Cecil's philosophy is what created this entire history. His strategic choices led to a controversial business philosophy, which in turn spawned conspiracy theories.
0: Exactly. And that would come to his advantage, it seems, especially when Herbert got bored of searching for diamonds and was enticed by a competing luxury good, gold. He left the diamond mine claims to Cecil and departed to mine for gold instead. It was a more feasible resource to discover than diamonds, as the claims were at this point fruitless. However tragedy would strike in the form of Herbert's death. A few years after leaving the diamond business, the man was asleep in his tent when it caught on fire. The tent rapidly went up in roaring flames and Herbert couldn't make it out. He died in 1879 at the age of 33.
1: The last thing Cecil Rhodes would ever have imagined was outliving his only brother. After all, he had been the sickly one. Cecil was now alone, over 8,000 miles away from the rest of his family.
0: He channeled his grief into ambition. Over the next few years, he became the second-largest claim holder in the De Beers mine, hoping and praying to discover diamonds.
1: Cecil did not succeed on his own. His salvation came in the form of the Rothschild family.
0: The Rothschilds were an incredibly wealthy family, known for their involvement in German nobility's finances. They not only handled the finances, but they lent nobility money as well. During this time period... The Rothschilds were known as court factors.
1: In exchange for the money, court factors were granted all sorts of social privileges, such as influence over nobility or even a title themselves. It sounds risky, but it was a risk that they were willing to take. And it was a risk that paid off for the Rothschilds in particular, because as time went on, they only got richer and more powerful. The
0: family name may sound familiar to you from our episodes on the Illuminati. And it is the same historical family, which makes you wonder about the real motivations behind the rise of diamonds in modern culture.
1: Of course, officially, the Rothschilds were just financiers. With Rothschild's funding behind him, Cecil expanded his claims on the De Beers mine, and his profits only grew. Once he had enough money in the bank, he bought out the claims owned by Barney Barnato, his fiercest competitor. Cecil would probably hate to admit to this, but Barney Barnato's history actually bears quite a lot of similarities to his own story. Barnato also followed his older brother to South Africa to take part in the Diamond Rush. Barnato started off penniless like Cecil, but over the years gained an incredible wealth from the Rush. But these similarities did not stop the two from being ultimate business rivals. The two were constantly battling to be the biggest claim holder on the De Beers mine, There was only one spot at the top, and both men desired it. However,
0: the rising control of other diamond companies complicated their antagonistic dynamic. The two realized that they would be stronger together than they would be against one another. Together with their wealth and power, they could control the industry as a full-on monopoly. So Cecil and Barnato reluctantly agreed to put their differences aside. With Barnado's partnership, Cecil rose to become the most prominent figure in the diamond industry and eventually separated to his own mining company. De Beers Consolidated Mines was officially formed in 1888 alongside
1: Barnato. At this time, smaller claim holders wished to merge with larger ones because they needed more land. Therefore, it only took a few years from the start of De Beers' Consolidated Mines, for Cecil to own the majority of the diamond mines in South Africa. This was the start of something bigger than Rhodes could ever have imagined. He went from a pale and sickly boy to an almost devious, clever man. He recognized the value that diamonds could have and invested in its beauty.
0: Derived from the Greek word adamas, diamonds are not just beautiful, they are unconquerable just like the derivative is defined. That meaning lends itself well to Diamond's association with commitment and an eternity of love and happiness. These were all words and thoughts that the De Beers Company would eventually utilize to start a monopoly. Johannes Nicholas De Beer and Diedrich Arnaldus De Beer were not only Dutch settlers, but were two brothers with very big dreams. In 1871, upon their arrival in South Africa, they bought a farm named Wreizsik. This was Dutch for outlook or perspective.
1: A bit ironic, if you ask me, considering that this farm would end up providing the two brothers the biggest outlook in their entire lives. The farm was far more prosperous than they could ever imagine. It was not only fertile with produce, but fertile with diamonds.
0: At first sight, the De Beers brothers thought it was simply a trick of the sun, those shimmering glints amongst the dark earth. But, alas, it was not. Johannes and Diedrich had unknowingly stepped onto a diamond mine. Unfortunately, their good luck did not last long. As the diamond rush grew, eager young men continuously trespassed onto the De Beers farm in search of diamonds. The De Beers were unable to protect their farm or the diamonds on it. They had to sell off the land before all the valuable diamonds were stolen out
1: from under them. In July of 1871, the De Beers brothers were forced to sell their farm to the government for 6,600 pounds. Oh, 6,600 pounds. That seems low. Well, we'd have to take inflation into account. That would mean 6,600 pounds in the year 1871 is equivalent in purchasing power to around 753,900 pounds in 2018. That's just over three-quarters of a million British pounds.
0: Still, it was a diamond mine. Isn't the value of that more than three-quarters of a million
1: dollars? That's up for interpretation. Vereitsicht ended up being the stomping ground for the aforementioned big hole. And while the DeBeer brothers may have lost out on the farm, they were paid in another way. The mine that formed on their formerly owned land was named after them. They had no idea that the De Beers mine would end up being one of the most successful diamond mines in the world and would be subsequently associated with the De Beers Consolidated, started by Cecil Rhodes.
0: Now that Cecil was in power, he had to remain there. To do so, De Beers Consolidated mines needed to turn a profit and remain powerful throughout the diamond industry.
1: Like we mentioned before, there was always a threat that the abundance of diamonds would detract from its rarity. This was also a fear shared by Cecil. He realized this could be solved by carefully controlling the amount of diamonds that were available on the market at any given time.
0: Devious but smart. In doing so, De Beers was in control of the supply versus demand and could set the prices to their choosing.
1: This worked out incredibly well when Rhodes decided to partner up with the Diamond Syndicate, a London-based cartel with a central marketing organization, in 1889. Able to regulate output and maintain prices, the agreement between the two proved to be very successful. Together, they controlled the supply to help maintain the high price and desirability of a diamond.
0: Rhodes was very serious about maintaining the elusiveness of a diamond. He laid off employees to deliberately slow the production of diamonds. If there was an excess in material, he stowed them away until the demand grew too urgent.
1: That would make diamonds appear
0: like a rarity. Exactly. It was strategic maneuver after strategic maneuver for him. De Beers began absorbing smaller mines to monopolize on the control. By the start of the 20th century, De Beers controlled an estimated 90% of the world's production of rough diamonds. Their best customers? America's rich and elite.
1: The rich and wealthy in Western societies were enamored by diamonds and believed them to be one of the best investments to make. This was mainly due to the exclusivity that De Beers promoted.
0: Diamonds were usually discovered in exotic, far-off places. Their rarity contributed to how expensive they were, making them a treasured find for those in the West.
1: Rhodes realized the fad and utilized marketing strategies to appeal to the Western societies. However, he would not live much longer to see the impact of his hard work. Cecil Rhodes died in 1902.
0: He was only 48, childless, unmarried, but incredibly wealthy. And for him, that was apparently all that mattered. Despite his ruthless nature, he was mourned, especially in the Oxford community, for donating enough money to provide numerous scholarships. However, his ruthless methods withstood his death and were continuing to be practiced even after he was long gone.
1: Ernest Oppenheimer took over the chairmanship in 1929, which would unknowingly start a dynasty between De Beers and the Oppenheimer family, one that would last nearly a century. Born on May 22, 1880, Sir Ernest Oppenheimer was a German-born mining entrepreneur and financier. Uh, Wait, sir? Yes, he was knighted in 1921, Prior to this, Oppenheimer founded the Anglo-American Corporation to develop gold mining in South Africa. This was done by the financial assistance of J.P. Morgan.
0: However, Ernest Oppenheimer's control over De Beers would not be smooth sailing. The year he started his chairmanship, something dark and ominous laid ahead. In October 1929, a stock market crash set off the Great Depression.
1: After taking down millions of investors in the stock market, the working class crumbled due to a lack of consumer spending. Companies started to lay off hundreds of thousands of workers. Here, it is described by economist Stan West. By April of 1930,
0: had had a pretty good recovery, but then it really fell out of bed. Uh, it began to declined precipitously almost on an uninterrupted basis until it reached the depression low on july 8, 1932 the market had declined 89 percent from the all-time high a bit less than three years earlier by 1933 the depression reached its lowest point nearly half of the banks had failed and somewhere close to 15 million americans were unemployed De Beers was not shielded from this economic hit. As the Great Depression continued, the demand for diamonds began to wither. As a result, De Beers' mines began to slowly close down, one by one. Something had to be done. If this continued, the De Beers company would cease to
1: exist. Harry Oppenheimer, Ernest's son, joined the De Beers board in 1934. Upon his initiation, Harry ushered in a pioneering diamond advertising campaign. De Beers not only utilized strategic tactics to hold a monopoly over the diamond industry, but they also used clever marketing maneuvers to keep diamonds appearing the best of the best.
0: Appearing? Hmm.
1: Well, no one ever questioned diamonds' value at this time, due to the marketing strategies formed by Harry and the rest of the board. The biggest one of all was placing an expectation on an engagement ring. Now, engagement rings trace their origins back to ancient times. In Rome, engaged women wore rings symbolizing that they were their husband's property. In Judaic tradition, a man was required to give a woman a gift, often a ring, to enter a formal betrothal, and the couple would stay betrothed for about a year before their marriage. In Celtic cultures, Claddagh rings were exchanged between lovers.
0: However, these rings
1: rarely featured diamonds. When De Beers got involved, that all changed. Diamonds were previously marketed as a symbol of eternal love and commitment. De Beers utilized that meaning and formed it into a pretty-looking weapon in the form of an engagement ring. This marketing played on the need to have a ring to confirm the validity of one's future marriage.
0: And from the 1940s onward, this
1: ring was expected to include a diamond. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now let's continue the story. Western women in particular came to expect diamond engagement rings from their to bees after the 1940s. No matter the socioeconomic status, it was considered a massive insult to not gift a woman a diamond engagement ring upon proposal.
0: Diamonds are expensive though. How are lower economic classes expected to pay for such a treasure? It would have been easier to just buy a silver band or even a lesser known gemstone.
1: Of course, buying a lesser known gemstone would have been the wise decision to make financially. But De Beers doesn't have stock in silver and other gemstones. They only sold diamonds. So, they marketed diamonds to no longer just belong to the upper class or influential couples. It was a necessity for all women. Working class women wanted a ring just like the movie stars. Or even Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady of the time. It's almost like De Beers' manipulated desperation and desire. Manipulated is one word to use. They could have just been ahead of the curve. This could be solidified in 1946, when De Beers coined the phrase, A diamond is forever. Frances Garrity, a young copywriter at the N.W. Ayer advertising agency, created the timeless slogan, A diamond is forever, the slogan said, even a small one. Ah, no wonder most women felt the need to have a diamond, and most men felt the need to live up to that expectation. It worked on both sides. Frances Garrity was a woman herself. I didn't know that. Many did not, but it worked in her favor. Fifty years later, the phrase was recognized by Ad Age as the greatest advertising slogan of the 20th century.
0: The runners-up in the greatest advertising slogan of the 20th century included familiar ones such as, just do it and good to the last drop. Ad Age believed that an unforgettable phrase that perfectly encapsulates a brand promise is the basis of many a successful campaign. I would have to agree. Did anyone notice that I did not include the runner-up companies with the slogan? Did that stop you from knowing exactly which company it was? Just like the jingles, advertising slogans were short and memorable enough to remain with the consumer.
1: The word forever fit in perfectly with De Beers and their slogan, because that was exactly what they were trying to sell. They appealed to a broad audience by showing that a diamond would last just as long as a commitment to one another. The slogan was successful and brought back the craze that Western societies had with diamonds. De Beers' minds slowly started opening back up all over the world. A royal visit to South Africa confirmed De Beers' return on a global level when King George and his family visited the Kimberley Mine in 1947.
0: De Beers' marketing didn't just limit itself to an engagement ring. It utilized universal appeal by proving that diamonds were not just for romantic love. Instead, diamonds could be a blanket symbol for all kinds of love, affection, and commitment. This was shown in the creation of rings such as the Trilogy Ring, the Eternity Ring, and Right Hand Ring.
1: The Trilogy Ring was meant to represent the past, present, and future of a relationship, be it a marriage, friendship, or a familial relationship. The Eternity Ring was a symbol of a long-term commitment and promise for love. Some considered buying this ring as a step to take prior to an engagement. The right hand ring, in particular, was purposefully advertised for single women. It was meant to be bought and worn by women as a show of independence.
0: Rings were for everyone, not just a certain few. Your financial or marital status shouldn't matter. De Beers wanted to make sure of that. And now that they were back on top of the world, De Beers wanted to keep its dominance over the international diamond industry. Their marketing was strong, but it wouldn't be enough. They needed a full monopoly over the product once more.
1: To hold on to their global power, De Beers utilized conniving strategic methods against others in the industry.
0: Are their methods considered conniving because De Beers
1: realized that the value of a diamond was not what they once believed? Could be. Or De Beers just recognized that businesses could be a dog-eat-dog world, and they wanted to ensure that they were the alpha. De Beers started off by attempting to convince independent diamond producers to join their consolidated company. They wanted a single monopoly on the diamond, and that couldn't be done if there was competition.
0: Understandable. They had enough power and money to appeal to independent diamond producers. Who wouldn't want to join up with De Beers and have the comfort of knowing they would always make a profit?
1: Well, actually, some independent diamond producers took great pride in what they were trying to accomplish and did not want to join up with De Beers. It felt far too corporate.
0: Hmm, I get a sense that De Beers did not take that very well.
1: Your sense is right. If that didn't work in their favor, De Beers then purposefully flooded the market with a higher diamond production. This was a stark juxtaposition to their prior choice to only release a limited amount of diamonds.
0: But there was a catch. De Beers didn't just release a higher quantity of diamonds, they released diamonds similar to those of producers who rejected taking their offer. It didn't matter the cut or the type, De Beers' popularity meant that those diamonds sold a lot quicker than those of independent producers.
1: This proved to be a cautionary tale later on down the line, considering a lot of the independent producers went out of business. Future diamond producers recognized that allowing De Beers to take over was a smarter and less risky choice. If you can't beat them, join him.
0: On top of that, De Beers was also known for purchasing and accumulating other manufacturers. In doing so, they had a monopoly of the diamond supply, and could control the prices to their liking, depending on the demand. And with diamonds, there was always a demand. It was actually very
1: smart of De Beers. Business is meant to be cutthroat, isn't it? it Depends on the product. Remember, a diamond is forever. When your product is one of the most valuable natural materials on Earth, why wouldn't you be cutthroat? With diamond mines located from South Africa to Botswana and all the places in between, the De Beers Collective was on the top of the world by the 1970s. They obtained international markets in locations such as Brazil and Japan, playing on similar advertising ploys as the ones in Western societies.
0: De Beers' marketing realized that they could entice other countries to break their traditional molds and imitate Western society. In the wake of World War II, the U.S. had arisen as a superpower, and Westernization was sweeping the world. Even in countries where there was not much stock placed on romance and marriage— Marketing strategies entrap the citizens to think otherwise. Once De Beers maintained that appeal, profits began to grow.
1: By the 1980s, diamonds were a commonality, not only in Western society, but everywhere else in the world. Tiffany & Company comes to mind in particular. Thanks to the 1961 classic Breakfast at Tiffany's, diamonds had even begun to infiltrate pop culture. Not only were real-life celebrities donning such jewels but so were beloved characters like Holly Golightly. It was inescapable. The Tiffany Foundation invested in mines to discover unique finds such as the Tiffany Diamond. Here's a news report describing it.
0: The big yellow diamond has 82 facets, 24 more than a traditional brilliant cut stone. At 128 carats, it is the largest diamond on display in the US. The Tiffany Foundation says the stone is priceless. With the rise of diamonds, there were jewelry stores on every corner. Aside from Tiffany & Company, companies such as Harry Winston, Cartier, and Chopard made their living by showcasing a wide selection of engagement rings and other diamond-encrusted jewelry.
1: Diamonds were no longer limited to engagement rings. One could find them on necklaces, bracelets, watches, the list goes on and on. The point is that diamonds were everywhere and De Beers remained at the center of it all.
0: This time period also ushered in the creation of the Princess Cut Diamond. Second in popularity only to Round Brilliant, this particular cut introduced an alternative to the typical and quickly became very desirable. Naturally, De Beers stepped into this game rather easily and marketed selling different types of cut to provide a fresh variety. It was proof that they would never go out of style.
1: The business model that De Beers put forth proved to be an incredible success. While other resources such as gold or silver fluctuated economically over the decades, diamonds moved upwards in profits.
0: In 1992, the Manisha mine was opened. It would become the largest diamond mine in South Africa, as well as a major hub for De Beers mining production. It is also the only mind opened by De Beers in the past 30 years. A surprisingly long gap, because a turn was about to occur for De Beers, a turn for the worse.
1: Nicky Oppenheimer, Harry's son, took over as chairman for De Beers in 1998 but he could not be prepared for what was to come next.
0: De Beers began to lose their control of the market as countries with diamond mines decided to distribute the product outside of the monopolized channel.
1: Additionally, the rise of synthetic diamonds have rocked diamond production. Synthetic diamonds provided people the means to purchase diamonds that looked real, but were far less expensive.
0: The De Beers monopoly declined rapidly. At the start of the 20th century, they were around 90% of the diamond industry. By the start of the 21st century, their control over the monopoly drastically dropped to 10%.
1: Over the last 20 years, the value and reputation of De Beers and diamonds has fallen drastically. However, as of 2016, 84% of engaged women had a diamond engagement ring, according to studies done by wedding planning website The Knot. When it comes down to it, diamonds do have lasting power. That's the official account on the history of the De Beers diamond cartel. From what we've discussed, it seems pretty based in facts
0: that De Beers was limiting competition and fixing prices.
1: Unlike some prior episodes, the theory lies less in the who and more in the what. Diamonds. Were diamonds actually valuable enough to warrant such severe tactics? Or did De Beers utilize the severe tactics to create a false sense of value?
0: Conspiracy theory number one. Is it really possible that diamonds could be meaningless? that like the cartel, they were not forever, and is it possible De Beers knew this?
1: But with a recent controversy around diamonds, another theory has arisen. Conspiracy theory number two, Cecil Rhodes was using De Beers to set up a new world order.
0: Was there an ulterior motive behind Rhodes' founding of Rhodesia and establishing Rhodes scholarships? And what about the unsettling connections between diamonds and wars that tore apart Africa?
1: Next week, we'll discuss.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more conspiracy theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show.
1: Tell us your favorite conspiracy theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network.
0: Join us next week for more conspiracy theories.
1: Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story.
0: And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Maya Houston and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.